So I'm going to ask us to do an activity to start. And I want you to find your Bible or your device that has a Bible. And if you don't have that on you, find someone to look over their shoulder or share it amongst two people. And I want you to read Matthew 13, 1 to 23. And the reason why I'm not getting you or we're not reading it out the front or anything like that is I just want you to take a moment to actually look at the words of our Bible and read the words of Jesus. So when you finish, just look at me and I'll know that everyone's finished. Matthew 13, 1 to 23, the parable of the sower. So as I reread this passage in preparation for this sermon, I kind of came to it and read it. And I all of a sudden realised that something was missing that I thought had been there. And that is a set of prescriptions about how to be the plant in good soil. It sort of struck me that as I read it, I had kind of assumed that that part of the parable was there. That there was some sort of instruction about how to not be like the first three sown seeds, but how to ensure that I was one of the ones that flourished and produced fruit a hundred times over. And this is kind of what Jed introduced us to two weeks ago in the introduction week. The danger of assumption. We all know the crass saying about assumptions, but yet we do it all the time, don't we? We make assumptions about people and their motivation. We make assumptions about our world and how our world should be. We make assumptions about God and what he may or may not be doing in our life or in our world. And we make assumptions about God's word. Jed introduced us to the idea that Jesus spoke in parables to surprise us to shake off our assumptions, to kind of cause us to listen and listen hard and listen again and revisit and reassess our assumptions about God, his people, his world and his kingdom. And Jed, the interesting man that he is, also introduced me to a recent book that surprised me. It's a kind of book, I don't know if you'd call it a book, a collection of essays, is that what you'd call it? (laughs) It's called Essays Against Everything. Basically, this book takes some of the good things in our world, the things that we love, exercise, food, being healthy, and it just strawmans them. It takes you on this journey of absolutely taking these good things and making them seem completely irrational or absurd. And the thing that I, I couldn't kind of, reason why I couldn't put this book down is that I just couldn't believe what I was reading. I'd never heard anyone say these things. And I all of a sudden was completely rethinking all these good and wonderful things in light of this very interesting argument. The parables are kind of like this, in their comparative, surprising and kind of upside down sort of way, take us on this journey of sort of confusing our assumptions. 
Sort of Jesus saying, don't assume that you know what the kingdom of God is like. Don't assume you know who's in and who's out. Don't assume you know what the kingdom will look like when it comes and when it's fully realised. And can I add here, this is why we read our Bibles. This is why I got you to read it. Because there's something powerful about actually picking up this book that some of us have heard about every week our entire lives, that we think we know what's in the pages, and yet it's constantly surprising us. The parable of the sower is kind of like this. Not only do all of our what we call synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark and Luke, the first three of the four gospels, not only do they all repeat this parable, but they also give it the most amount of real estate. It's the first, it's the longest, and the kind of turning point parable of Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is what you read, embedded in the middle of the parable is Jesus' explanation for why he speaks in parables, which kind of gives it this very interesting and very powerful place in terms of all the parables. So what can we know about this story? I'm going to make three points. The first point is the word, namely Jesus, is sown everywhere. In this parable, God is the sower. This is not Jesus scattering the seed and it's not us scattering the seed. God is doing the sowing and he doesn't pick and choose where to scatter the seed. Let's not think modern farming here with our beautiful classy paddocks and John, I can talk to John about it. He knows all that modern farming. This is my kind of farming. You have a plot of land. It's very varied. There's some good sections and some bad sections. There's a path through the middle. You're not quite sure where your path ends and where the neighbours begins. So they just used to put it everywhere. Just in the hope that something took. That is my kind of gardening, I have to say. The farmer is not partial to where he places the seed. He doesn't walk around going, that looks good, place the seed there. No, that looks a bit rocky. Oh, yeah, I'll put one there. The sower sows the seed everywhere. So the seed, Jesus, is already present everywhere. But we don't kind of act like this, do we? Well, I don't. I kind of think that we as Christians feel like we need to go to these sort of God-forsaken places and sow the seed because God's not there already, that we're bringing this, uh, this sort of seed of Jesus to these places. This is not what we see in this parable. In this parable, God the sower has scattered the seed, Jesus, everywhere. Jesus and the potential of the kingdom is present in every crack, in every valley, in every mountain and on every field. He's already there. He's already ready to do his thing. Which brings us to the second point. The seed in and of itself is good, effective and worthy 
We're not witnessing a variety of effectivenesses of the seeds. The seed is not what we're supposed to see in this parable. The seed is not the thing that's changing in this parable. For those of you who did school in Australia, and I don't know about modern curriculum, but when I was at school, pretty much everyone did this same year 10 assignment where you had to make up your own experiment. Anyone? Bill, did you teach this? <laughs> it's basically go come up with an experiment, experiment and come back and tell us how you went. It's kind of science 101, right? And it's learning this concept that in a science experiment, you only vary one thing, which is one of the tricky things about this assignment. How can you keep everything else consistent while you just change one thing to observe that? Now, I actually did seeds and plants and I was looking at water conserving water. So basically we're in the middle of a drought and there were all these ideas about how to conserve water in your garden. So I thought I'm gonna test it. I'll like water the plants for a few weeks and then I'll just stop and see how they go. See how until they die basically. But the idea of this experiment is that you only change one thing. So I had to keep the same pots, the same soil, the same plants, the same um, environment, the same amount of water and just change one factor. In this parable, we're only witnessing one thing that changes. The seed is sown everywhere. The seed is the same. The seed is good and worthy and ready to do its thing. There's only one thing changing and that's the environment in which it's placed. Consider the seeds on the path that are eaten by the birds. Has anyone studied what happens to seeds when eaten by animals? Does anyone know that often they come back out the other end unaffected and ready to do their thing again? Even the seed eaten by the birds kind of has the potential to still kind of do its thing eventually. The seed itself, it still has the potential for effectiveness. It kind of should be called the parable of the soils or the parable of the environments because that's the thing that's in view. And that brings us to the last point about this parable. The outcome is described in terms of fruitfulness as a result of the soil. The sower sows everywhere. The seed itself is sort of minimal and a bit mysterious. Seeds are so small and so insignificant and yet can have incredible outcomes. But we only know the value of that seed and that environment until after a while, when in the right place, under the right conditions, the seed sprouts, grows and bears fruit. Now the other thing you'll notice is there's not actually four outcomes described. There is in fact six. There's the seed that's eaten. There's the sprouts that are burned. There's the plants that are choked. There's the fruitful plants that produce 30 times over. There's the fruitful plants that produce 60 times over. And there's the fruitful plants that produce 100 times over. 
Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. Sometimes the seed lands here and sometimes the seed lands there. And it's kind of a loving but sad commentary on the way things are. That's what struck me when I read the parable. It's just the way it is, Jesus says. Sometimes this happens and sometimes that happens. It's not a threat of retaliation. If you don't plant me in the right environment, I'm not going to grow. The intent of the seed is to grow, to thrive, to bear fruit. The failure of the plant or the environment to do such a thing can't come back to the seed. The sole role of the hearer of the good news, the the, the recipient of the seed, is to hear, accept and bear fruit. And there's no prescription even given for how to bear 30 or 60 or 100-fold. That's the mystery of the power of the seed and the soils at work. And Jesus kind of emphasises this mysterious nature by quoting this Isaiah passage that says, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding, you'll be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Or in Luke's version of this parable, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So what kind of ears hear? And what kind of eyes see? What kind of heart is soft and penetrable? What kind of soil ensures a fruitful plant grows? Well, from this parable, I'm actually not sure we can really know. I'm not sure we can conclude that from that parable. This parable doesn't leave us with any guidance and direction as to how to be the ones that bear fruit, where where we produce a hundredfold in good soil. How can we not be the ones that grow but are choked by the worries and the wonders and the good things of our world? Where we're there and we're growing but we're not bearing fruit or or we're only bearing 30-fold when we could actually be bearing 100-fold. Capon, who has written a lot on this parable, frames it like this. The seed will do its thing if only we don't get in the way. It's the unencumbered, slow progression of a seed from its unassuming beginnings towards its desired end, a fruit-filled plant. That's what the seed wants to do in our life. It wants to bear fruit. And it, it's kind of helpful, I think, at this point to start to zoom out from this parable because fruit and fruitfulness is a very common theme in the New Testament. It's very frequently used as a description of what the kingdom of heaven taking root in someone's life looks like. 
It's almost every couple of chapters in every single gospel is a mention of fruit and bearing fruit and fruitfulness or that sort of imagery and language. I mean, one chapter earlier in Matthew 12, Jesus said, you can tell a tree by its fruit. And in nearly every instance where it's mentioned, fruit is not something you can will. It's not something you can manufacture, guarantee, work towards, practice, do, or draw out. Just as the parable of the sower says, fruit will come if the seed lands in good soil. Sometimes there'll be heaps of fruit, sometimes there'll be less. So how do we give the seed the best chance to do what it wants to do? How can we get out of the way and let the plant reach its intended end? I believe the answer resides in John 15, 4 to 5. Remain in me, Jesus says, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither you can bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain is the word abide, to stay, to be with, to reside. Those who stay closely connected to Jesus, his words, his commandments, his love, they will be the ones bearing fruit. And as those gathering to do church, there's a very good chance we aren't the first seed snatched off the path by the birds. So we're either abiding or we'll be like those whose roots are so shallow that when trouble or persecution comes, we'll wither and die. Or we'll be those that grow but become suffocated and fruitless because of the world's worries or the seduction of wealth. If you've got ears to hear, then hear. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, the very word of God, the way, the truth and the life, the true vine. Remain in us as we in you. We pray that you would reveal to us the state of our ears, our eyes, our heart and our life. Would you show us clearly the depth of our roots and the quality of our fruit? For those of us stuck in the rocks, may we abide in you so that our roots have the chance to bury deep so we are prepared for trouble. 
for those of us being choked by the worries and the wonders of our world, may we abide in you and find our life source in you and you alone. For those of us bearing fruit, may we abide in you so as to produce fruit a hundred times what was sown and bear witness to the glory, wonder and love of Jesus. As a community, may we encourage one another to abide in Christ together, to be found in his love, word and commandments so the world may know.